Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet's a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make your world a better place. Whether you're in business, an issue-based campaign, or an organisation driving change in the community, Dunstreet develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organising them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out ways in which Dunstreet can partner with you and make change in your local community, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, my name is Stephen Donnelly and welcome to episode four of Socially Democratic. It's a weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people that are leading them from home and abroad. On today's episode, uh, we've got John McTiernan. John was the former Director for Communications to Julia Gillard when she was Prime Minister um, and John is also um, a senior advisor to the uh, Blair governments in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, and uh, John is joining us on the line from London today. And I will give you guys a word of warning. The audio on this uh, isn't as good as I wanted it to be. Um, we had some uh, technical difficulties throughout. The um, internet was sort of dropping in and out, which is a little bit frustrating. I personally blame the federal Liberal government for not implementing the full Stephen Conroy NBN. Um, Fibre to the node uh, is not good enough. Um, so that's the problems we had today. Um, but um, So please bear with us um, with the uh, audio, um, and hopefully uh, you can um, sort of tolerate it for this particular podcast. Next time we have someone from overseas or on the line, I, uh, I guarantee it will be a much better sound. Um, also, don't forget the podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you do subscribe to Apple Podcasts, can you please um, give us a review uh, and, uh, and um, subscribe to the podcast? It'll help us with our, our rankings, and we'll try and see if we can get ourselves on the Apple Podcast new and noteworthy. Um, we're also on Spotify and Stitcher and obviously on all the other app, um, sort of podcast apps that, um, that you use. Um, so don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast to get all the updated uh, episodes. Um, I know that normally we um, do these episodes, try to get them up on a Monday or a Tuesday, but with the European elections on this week, we just held off until later in the week to try and let the dust settle and get John to, to give us a bit of a... Uh, uh, an analysis of how the elections played out, in particular how the elections played out in uh, in Britain and the awful results that were for Labor up and down the country from Land's End to John O'Groats. Um, and also, don't forget, if you want to follow the podcast uh, and for all the updates, just follow us at Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh, but uh, let's go to the interview that we did uh, today with uh, John McTiernan. So we've had the European elections on Tuesday uh, Australian time. It is uh, Thursday evening at uh, quarter to seven and that would be around about quarter to ten in the morning uh, Britain time and it's fantastic to have on Socially Democratic for the first time, but not the first time I've done a podcast with this great man, John McTinn, and welcome to Socially Democratic. We uh, had the elections uh, this week in Europe for all the parliamentary elections and I was uh, very keen to get you on to, to talk to you about the outcomes of those elections. Um, but even before then, I actually wanted to get on the podcast to talk about Brexit. There's so much happening in Europe right now, um, so we have so much to get through. Let's talk about the European elections. Let's talk about what it means in terms of Britain. Let's talk about what it means in terms of the Labour Party in Britain. Uh, and then maybe later on in the podcast, we can talk a bit about Brexit itself. But... John, just can you just give us for the for for the listeners to the podcast, give us a bit of an overview of the European parliamentary elections that happened this week, um, and the, the 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 results across Europe for the left and the right, and what 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 what, what did you expect, and what were the outcomes? So there was an obsession uh, in the Anglosphere, uh, definitely in the in the U.S. papers and I think a bit in Australian papers and Australian media too, with the notion that there was some right-wing populist tied with a surge across Europe, break the European model, break the European Union, break the political system. Um, we'll come to Brexit and what that means in Britain, but 
the expected tidal wave didn't come, uh, you've got what 20 to 25 percent uh, of the uh, Europe, the MEPs in the new European Parliament are going to come from, you know, quotes populist parties. But you, but that's a populist uh, range that goes from the populist left to the populist right. And for all that people believe uh, in the horseshoe theory of politics, it's really. Uh, hard to get the pirate party to work together with um, what was you know, Marine Le Pen's uh, uh, Front National. Um, you obviously saw a big victory in, um, uh, in Italy for Salvini, but everybody knew that was coming, that was priced in. You saw a fallback for the AFD uh, in Germany. You did see um, you know, results in Poland and, and Hungary, which weren't as good for the opponents of the populists there. Uh, but again, that could probably be anticipated. Uh, and then um, in France, you saw Marine Le Pen getting broadly the same vote that uh, her party got in the last European elections. And you saw that Macron uh, offers the only uh, potential um, electoral alternative to that. Uh, from nowhere, his party uh, came to virtually equal with the Front National. Um, the Republican Party, the traditional old Conservative Party in France, wrecked, ruined. The Socialist Party, you know, uh, for decades, the, the, the main left party, and particularly since the collapse of the Communist Party in France, uh, the, the only organised left party uh, in ruins. Um, and so what do you see with Macron? Macron has probably got the only political programme that can effectively uh, combat uh, the populace uh, of the right. His muscular centrism um, uh, is probably uh, the way for political parties to go across Europe. And when you look at um, when you look at the results, the pattern of the results, uh, you'd say across Europe you have got um, a globalized or a benefiting from globalized urban uh, professional class. Um, who are liberal in social values, who are green environmental in their attitudes. Um, I think you and your listeners will understand that that, that has a resonance for Australia, um, has a resonance in, in, in the US uh, as well. When you look at the popularity of uh, AOC and the Green New Deal and some of the ideas around that. Um, and and there's, you see the, the battle between, between those two. And so where is it going for left and right? Um, the growth in the growth in European politics in, for, in terms of MEPs in the European Parliament uh, is amongst uh, the Liberals, small L Liberals, not the same as the, the Tory Liberals uh, in Australia, and the Green parties. Um, and so, what's the challenge? What, what would I say? There's been a growth in support for progressive politics and progressive political parties. If there's been a decline in support for traditional social democrat uh, parties. The, you know, the destruction of the socialists in France is one thing. The catastrophic collapse of the um, uh, Social Democrats in Germany, one historically the largest uh, of their parties, and also one of the largest social democratic parties uh, in any in any kind of uh, Western democracy. And what is it? What are the challenges for the traditional parties of the left and of the right? Again, I suspect this will have resonance for you and for for listeners. Um, that the that traditional right parties are being attacked from two directions. One is that um, uh, the populist parties of the right are eating into their vote. But the second one, which is more difficult for them in the longer term, and those populist parties really organise around issues of identity um, defensively. Um, and the other issue is for these these parties uh, of the right is that the middle-class voters who used to traditionally fall into their camp and vote for them are becoming liberal in social values. Uh, take equal marriage as a good example of that. Uh, or take um, uh, women's rights, uh, equal representation for women in parliament, those things which are still strangely a matter of dispute in some uh, conservative political parties. And they're becoming more environmental. What does it mean for uh, traditional social democratic parties? They are going to have to become greener, more liberal, because let's let's be clear, 
social democratic parties have not always been socially liberal. There's been a very strong socially conservative strand within them, and that's particularly comes from elements of the labor movement, which is itself at times socially democratic, uh, socially democratic in organization, but also quite defensive in social values and socially conservative. Um, uh, but it does mean that, I'll, I'll finish on this point really, it does mean that the opportunities for growth are really there at the progressive center uh, with those liberal and green values meshed with it, with traditional social democratic values. Um, but the rise to populists tells us another thing, which is that leadership matters in all of our political systems. Leadership matters, and charismatic leaders do better than those without charisma. Who are the come back to Jeremy Corbyn later. We will indeed. Who are the people that tend to vote? in mainland Europe in these particular elections. I did read that turnout was higher in this particular election. Uh, is it the politically engaged that do uh, turn out to vote or...? or uh... Uh, they, they, so... Tra traditionally, there are higher turnouts in Europe for the European Parliament elections because the countries which have joined the European Union at whatever point, whether at the founding or in later expansions, or whether the post-Soviet uh, independent countries have joined, um, the post-Warsaw Pact countries, um, post-communist economies, they've kind of got more of a commitment to it than Britain, the reluctant joiner. Um, and so we've always traditionally had a lot of turnouts, and it's healthy turnouts um, in the uh, in mainland European countries, and. So it's kind of hard to say that it's just a, it's not a minority sport. It's not compulsory voting, but people believe these elections matter about the future direction of Europe because for, for all kinds of reasons, uh, for European countries, the unity of Europe uh, economically and politically, um, democratically, and also in terms of uh, security is really, really important because they still... Uh, you know, very, very many countries uh, in Europe, uh, whether Spain or Portugal or Greece, uh, had relatively recent experience of dictatorship, and obviously uh, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, other countries have had um, have had even more recent experience of lacking democracy mm. uh, and even occupation. So. I think the kind of the dem the, the, there's less of a democratic deficit in in mainland Europe than there is in the UK, and in the UK it really reflects participation, really reflects the deep ambivalence about Europe that came out in the Brexit referendum. So let's turn our attention across the English Channel to to Britain in these elections. Give us uh, some context heading into these elections, because obviously we've and we'll talk more about Brexit in a moment. But you know, because of Brexit, I don't think people certainly people who were on the leave side of the argument considered even having to be contesting these elections in the first place. But things obviously haven't transpired in that way. Britain still remain members of the European Union and now have to contest these elections in which half the country arguably don't want to be a part of it in the first place. Give us some context about going into these elections, how all the respective parties pitched themselves to the electorate for these um, European elections. <laughs> So these were the elections that Britain wasn't meant to have. Uh, we were meant to have left the European Union uh, by March the 29th, uh, but faced with a menu of options for leaving, which ranged from the terrible to the appalling, uh, the House of Commons uh, MPs in the House of Commons decided uh, to vote for none of the above, and we are therefore in a situation where we've got an extension to Britain's uh, membership of the European Union, uh, while the government tried to sort itself out by electing a new leader uh, for the governing party, the Tories, and while uh, the Commons tries to sort out a way, what its options are, which are settling down, and we'll talk a bit more, uh, to basically no deal or no Brexit. So the political parties went into it. The, the two main parties, Labour and Tory, uh, have both earned various ways leave parties, but both quite compromised leave parties. The Conservatives are a compromised leave party because the withdrawal agreement that they agreed with the um, European Union, probably, in all honesty, the best deal that the UK could have got out of those negotiations, 
um, given the constraints put on the negotiations by Prime Minister Theresa May and by the realities of the Conservative Party, um, could not command a majority on the right of the House. So, theoretically, uh, the Northern Ireland Unionists, the Democratic Unionists, plus the Conservative Party is enough to furnish a slim majority for what the government wants to do. It turned out that uh, certain technical issues, mainly around the island of Ireland, um, prevented the Unionists and prevented the right wing of the Tory party uh, waving through a withdrawal agreement. And so on their right emerged the Brexit party with a really simple proposition, which is, you know, says what it, you know, does what it says on the tin, you vote for the Brexit party, we're voting to leave, that's it. Mm. Um, and the claim and the demand of the, uh, of the Brexit party was, you voted to leave, politicians are stopping this happening, send them a message. We're going to leave, we have to leave. Uh, on the left, the Labour Party um, has got a party membership and voters who are 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10, in favour of staying in the European Union. But a party leader in Jeremy Corbyn who is a Eurosceptic who campaigned against joining Europe in the 70s and has never really settled to Britain's membership of what he regards as a capitalist club. Um, and so the Labour Party has kind of always positioned itself as, yes, we have to leave because the vote went that way, but we need a better deal than the, than the Tory government uh, have negotiated. If we were a government, we'd negotiate a better deal, uh, a deal for workers, a deal for jobs, a deal for the economy. Um, which really isn't on offer because all Brexit's hurt the British economy to a lesser or greater extent. And the, pr and, and the problem with the Labour position was it was sitting on the fence. And the challenge, the deep challenge uh, politically, is a referendum resets the realities of politics. It's what it did in Scotland, which after that referendum it divided the country into uh, yes or no. An independence party, the SNP, which got all the support of the minority who voted for independence, uh, and a, a range of uh, unionist parties who split the vote between them, Labour, Lib Dems, and uh, the Scottish Conservatives. The same thing is really clear looking at UK politics now. There are on, the only question in British politics is Brexit, and you have to have a position on that. And the, there's only there's a binary. It's remain or leave. Um, and the Labour Party ended up being seen as a kind of leave party. Which that field was contested. If you want to leave, you can vote Tory or Brexit. It's fascinating that we stand here today in 2019 and we have a, a Labour Party in Britain that is ultimately a leave party. I just, I just, I, if you think back to the days of. Blair and Brown and yeah. even before then this is a party that has been about Europe and now this is a sort of going into this election there is this quasi as you said before just sitting on the fence kind of arrangement uh, there's a question I was going to ask you much later in the podcast but I think I'm going to, I'm going to bring it forward now because you, 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 you and I have spoken about this off air previously when we were caught up you have a thesis that ultimately just like how Irish politics was defined in from from the establishment of the Irish Free State in in the early twenties. That Irish politics is not a left right dichotomy, but it is a pro treaty anti treaty. That is, it is a uh, the, the, the politics yep. in Ireland is defined by whether you supported an Anglo Irish treaty that created the Irish Free State. That is Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Um, in British politics, it has always been a left right politics, something that in Australia we're very very familiar with. But your theory is that potentially going forward, that British politics will be defined by whether you are in favour of being in the European Union or not being in the European Union. Now, you and I had that conversation in 2016. Where are you with that theory right now, given that we've had multiple elections since then, and what is happening in terms of the, that, 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 that theory? The, I think the theory is being borne out, to be absolutely honest. Um, couple of reflections. One is um, Ireland shows you that deep, deep conflicts in the case of Ireland, one that actually 
was first an armed rising against the British and then was a civil war within Ireland. Those conflicts take over a century to recover from. That simply is the reality because you have to get to a point where everybody who is involved uh, in that conflict, that fight, that struggle, has died. Hmm. And you probably have to get to a point where most of their children have died as well um, because it's still a mobilizing identity. Uh, and what's happening is the older generation who participated uh, have died, like some people like my granddad uh, and some of my great uncles, and the, then the generation of aunts and uncles have died and gradually left with my mum's generation. Um, finally talking about what the elders did and it finally seeps back into a discussion because now it's long enough away to sort of normalise it, humanise it and talk about it and not valorise it. Now obviously the conflict in Britain over remain uh, and leave is nothing of that scale it's not a civil war uh, and it's not a situation which the Nigel Farage of this world threaten go out on the streets and to don you khaki and fight to liberate Britain, um, that is a mind populated by too many Saturday and Sunday afternoon uh, World War II movies. Mm. Um, but there is a reality of the identity that is created by the definitional and existential choice of a referendum. People chose an identity in Scotland over, the, over independence. And the yes identity is a very powerful one, uh, and the, uh, the no identity is not a powerful one. People chose to leave that as a very powerful identity. It has got a very, very rich mix of different forces within it. Um, and the leave identity uh, has always been, has always been in the debate and the disputes. Leavers will be angry if we don't leave. And what's happening in Britain is the creation of an identity I'd call angry remainers. Um, six, six million people, uh, a record number, signed a petition, uh, an online petition for the House of Commons calling for the revocation of Article, Article 50, therefore stopping the withdrawal from the European Union. Uh, a million people went on a march in London. And the most striking thing about that march in London uh, was... This was Britain's professional middle classes of all ages uh, and of all races on the march. And the number of them that wore uh, around their necks like football fans, uh, the flag of the European community, the European Union, the, the, the blue flag with the yellow stars on it. In a way that a football, an England fan might wear in England, it's George's cross on their back, or a small flag, St. Andrew's cross. Uh, and that, is, that has never happened before. That is a really interesting thing to see, a new identity being created on the streets uh, of the country. And the, and the question that is being posed in my mind is, yes, there's lots of angry leavers who voted for Nigel Farage. Angry remainers are cashed up, uh, networked socially, networked economically, skilled in communication, skilled... Like there's far better potential for organising a mass political movement, uh, and one that can operate from on the on, on the on the on the Remain side than on on, on the Leave side. And in a way, you saw that in the um, the referendum, which is uh, not the referendum, sorry, in the in the in the European elections, you saw that that when Labour didn't offer a sufficiently strong uh, case to um, the country, it was punished everywhere. Worst election result um, in uh, in Wales since 1918. Worst election result in Scotland since 1910. And 1906 wasn't really an election the Labour Party stood in. It was one where there was candidates standing by agreement with the Liberal Party. So, worst election really, worst election result in Scotland in history. Talk us through the numbers about Scotland, just to give the listeners a bit of a, con uh, a concept of how bad the results were in Scotland. Well, Scotland, the Scottish Labour Party came uh, below 10% of the of the poll, and the Remain vote all went for the SNP, overwhelmingly for the SNP, um, to an extent that the SNP are now asking for another referendum, even though many, many people who voted for them are voting on the European Union issue. It's a disaster for the Labour Party in Scotland, um, and it would would mean 
effectively the non-existence of the, of the Labour Party in Scotland if that was repeated at a general election. Um, and, and it was a very clear judgment there that if you're a Remain voter, you wanted to vote for a clear Remain party. And in, in London, what that meant was uh, people voted for the Liberal Democrats. In my borough, Southwark, three Labour MPs. In the neighbouring borough of Lambeth, three Labour MPs. In Islington, two Labour MPs, including um, Jeremy Corbyn. All those boroughs and many more. The Liberal Democrats topped the poll, and the, and the Greens came from nowhere in most of those uh, areas, too. People were sent, I mean, basically mobile voters were willing to say, send a message to Jeremy Corbyn anyway, I'll vote for the Liberal Democrats, which Labour people don't normally do, or for the Greens, which left, you know, Corbyn is, is the voice of the left in British politics, that's what he stands for, that's what he says he stands for, and yet uh, people of the left chose to vote for the Greens as well. Two different ways of sending messages to the, um, uh, to the, to the Labour Party uh, that... There is, if we go back to my comment about what the European elections say, you know, urban uh, pro-globalisation or beneficiaries of globalisation, educated, professional, middle class, socially liberal, uh, environmentally uh, concerned voters found they had a Liberal Party, Liberal Democrat Party, uh, and a Green Environmental Party to go to, and they could happily leave the Labour Party. And the, the Labour Party campaign eventually came down to if you don't vote for us, uh, you're letting the far right in. You want, I can vote for the Liberal Democrats and for the Greens, and that's not supporting the far right in any way. And that is part of the 21st century, 21st century politics, the growing expansion, you know, the expansion of, of education, uh, of post-16 education, of further education and TAFE, uh, of uh, higher education. It leads to a very different electorate, one which is informed, uh, broadly progressive, broadly liberal, uh, and has a very strong sense of agency and a very, very strong sense in a sense of consumerism. They can shop between the parties. Um, and what, what you see in British politics is a charismatic figure on the far right, or the, probably far right, Nigel Farage, the Brexit party, a charismatic candidate for Tory leadership, Boris Johnson, whatever one thinks of him, he could go into any pub any working in any working class community in the country and be greeted uh, with a cheer and a pint of beer, uh, as could Farage. And in the centre of British politics, the Liberal Democrats, Change UK, the new part, start-up party, the Labour Party, uh, even out towards the Greens, there is not a single charismatic figure. Where is the charismatic figure? There's no, there's no charismatic leader uh, on uh, the on the progressive side of politics who can pull those fragments together. Nobody able to take a clear stand, take it to the country, unite those things together in a, to create you know, a Remain party that would match the Brexit party, that would then be, because look, all British politics is not Brexit, not all the challenges we face are Brexit, but you can't go round Brexit, you've got to go through Brexit. So somebody needs to make a decisive, take a decisive lead to whether we stay or we crash out. Um, and after that, forming the politics uh, that, that actually faces up to the challenges that the country and the economy and the society has uh, in the early decades of the 20th century. It's, it's, it is, I mean, look, it's fascinating because in some ways Brexit is this kind of uh, distraction and not an insignificant distraction. I'm not trying to belittle it in any way. But Brexit has become this massive distraction for British politics that is taken the attention of everyone for the last, you know, two or three, f four years. Uh, um, if I was any of these political parties, particularly the mainstream ones, either Conservative or Labor, I would be thinking, we, OK, we need to handle this and just get, get it out of the way and get back to traditional politics. Um, I don't understand the strategy with Jeremy Corbyn. Look, I, I appreciate his background. Um, he's been in the parliament for a very, very long time. His, his history, his politics has been very, very well documented, but he's now the leader of the Labor Party, a moderate, centrist, centre-left um, party that has long held a view about Britain. There is uh, electoral opportunities for, for the party to, as you say, take that charismatic leadership on this issue and do well. He has a... Uh, uh, 
a, a membership base that is that is fiercely defendant of, of Britain being a, a member of the European Union. Yet I, I am baffled by his, like it's intransigence or it's his silence or he's sitting on the fence. Like I just, I, if I was sitting in a, in a, in, 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 a, in, a, in a room with him as a, as a, a political um, uh, advisor, I would be saying to him, Jeremy, you need to lead on this. Our own base is looking for your for your leadership on this. Um, the, the wider electorate is looking for your leadership on this, and you're being quiet on this. And he's done this all through the Brexit campaign, which I felt like he kind of got away with in some respects. Um, uh, and then then you've had the the actual general election, and, and arguably people have said it's been a good, good result for Labor. They got back in the game, but now. Is there? I guess my question is: Is there a view now amongst Labor supporters? Both I'll get to the membership in a moment, but generally speaking, Labor supporters—they've kind of said, "All right, Jeremy, we've put it, we've had enough of your just kind of, kind of playing both sides of the street on this, and we've now just voted with our feet." Will we see a reaction from from the party leadership on this in terms of, or, or will Jeremy himself? What, what has been his reaction really? Let's let's hear from him. What has he said after the election? Has he come out and said, "Yeah, I've kind of I've stuffed that up." And I'll be more clearer on this, or is he still trying to play both sides of the street? So let's start with Jeremy. Jeremy's uh, problem here is who he is. Uh, you've mentioned his, uh, his 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 long parliamentary career, his long career uh, in uh, the politics of the left uh, in the Labour Party. He's caught in a contradiction, which is that. He, his, his strongest card politically is his authenticity. And his authenticity is rooted uh, in two things which are now in conflict. The, his authenticity is, I have never changed my view. I still have the same views I had in the 1970s. I am principled, unlike Tony Blair, Neil Kinnock, um, Chaka Amuna, Liz Kendall, whoever, anybody else in the Labour Party um, is compromised, unlike me, unprincipled. Okay, if we take that to be your calling card, we have to then say, well, you oppose the common market, you presume you still oppose the European Union. And kind of that is where he is, and people can see that. People don't know the detail, but voters get that, that he's uncomfortable with uh, the European Union. Now, he gave it, was it seven and a half out of ten during the referendum campaign, uh, was his line. And <coughs> despite despite that, um, when it came to the general election, Theresa May framed the general election question as being, I want a mandate for a hard Brexit. Uh, that's what Britain voted for. Give me a majority. And the country went, hold on a second, and took her majority away from her and gave Jeremy Corbyn the votes to take that majority away from, uh, away, away from her. And that was really important. Um, come back to what that really meant, but that general election was people being willing to use the Labour Party as a vehicle to stop a hard Brexit and maybe to stop Brexit itself. Jeremy took that, that um, the election as an endorsement of Labour's manifesto policy, which was to respect the referendum result. His problem is his, his, second, his second strand of his authenticity is he stands for the membership. He speaks for the membership. Well, the membership and almost all the unions, uh, affiliated trade unions, want to stay in the European Union because they value the protection uh, of workers' rights, the union movement, value the social chapter, the, the protection, European-wide protection for, for workers' rights. Um, and most party members and party supporters are big, big supporters of the European Union. So he's got a contradiction. His authenticity is he stands for the membership, but he's... But his authenticity is he's never changed his mind. He's been unable to resolve that, to find a way to say, um, look, I believe this, but the party wants this, and I will always follow the party. I'm not a leader like other leaders. I'm not like Tony Blair. I don't have my view and impose it on you. I have my view, but you have your view, and I'll follow you. And in, in my local electorate, a 37,000 Labour majority, uh, which in my... In my period of activism, um, so just 22 years ago, uh, it was 180 uh, vote, a margin of 180 vote, um, Tory majority. So now an overwhelming Labour area. Um, doing uh, door knocking, you got 
Labour voter after Labour voter, all angry with Jeremy Corbyn and all saying, I'm not sure to whether I'm going to vote Liberal Democrat or whether I'm going to vote Green. Um, and that is the pr that's the problem that he faces, which is he, he can't be true to himself and true to the party. And he had, and he his his strategic ambiguity definitely worked as a strategy for a period. And that you know the the is it Napoleon who said never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. Yeah. I mean the Tories were making so many mistakes. Well, why would you bother to get involved in that? But the the, the campaign strategy of continuing ambivalence and ambiguity into uh, the election was disaster. It came from the top, uh, and he should take his knocks for that, but he won't take his knocks for that. And I think the interesting thing is how that reverberates through the party. And the second thing, which I think everybody uh, who's listening to this podcast and you yourself will recognise, which is that voting is a habit. Um, and the habit of voting Labour, if you start voting Labour early, you'll vote Labour for most of your life. Promiscuity in voting is a habit too. Once you get the feeling you can shift parties... You don't stop doing it. You start once you've shopped around once. You shop around another time. Um, well, yeah, I mean that's the that's the follow-up question, isn't it? So you've had this election. Uh, there's been a major swing against the Labor Party in some of its core constituencies up and down the country, not just in London, but across across uh, you know uh, the, the, you know uh, England and, and Wales and Scotland, um, and. I felt that Jeremy Corbyn's leadership had been protected because of the membership in particular, because there's been attempts um, in the past for the caucus to try and, and move on him, and, and he has managed to stave off those attempts because of this huge balloon of members that have joined the party in the, in the, under, during his leadership that has kind of protected him. But when he has now effectively gone into an election campaign where he's taken policies that have been against the, one of the fundamentals of that membership, which is um, being pro-Europe. Um, when is the tip... Is there a tipping point within the court, within, within either the membership or within those that actually are close to Jeremy within his inner sanctum um, to sort of read the winds of change or, or get a sense that he is now fundamentally out of kilter with um, the values of the Labor Party when it comes to the question of Europe. Um, is, there, is there now a tipping point in which people sort of say to him, either the membership or the people close to him, you know, as that sort of quintessential Australian um, term, you know, pull out digger, the dogs are pissing on your swag. Do you get a sense that there is a shift in attitude by either the membership or those close to him? So there's, there's already been a shift in the membership, which is there's been uh, a fall-off in membership. Uh, people have been leaving the party or not renewing their membership. But who's that been, though, John? Is, is that, are they the, the new ones? So it's the new it is. So it's the momentum type of people that are falling away. Well, the, the, the Corbyn enthusiasts would be, broader, would be a, a broader definition of it. And we've noticed it, well, I've noticed it in my local branch meetings, where... They, we used to be a small branch with a couple of hundred members and only eight or nine people came to branch meetings. We ballooned to about 700 members and up to 30 people would come to meetings. We're now falling down to 400 members, so bigger than we used to be. We're back down to eight or nine people coming to, to branch meetings. And so that wave of enthusiasm uh, has disappeared. Um, and it has, it has to be said. I mean, look, I'm in an inner London uh, constituency which has gentrified, the electorate has gentrified massively. Um, it's, you know, I don't know, more reservoir than it is um, uh, Fitzroy, but it's, mm. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's one in which um, the people who've joined the Labour Party joined uncynically in the main, but with their hearts high, with optimism about change, a belief in the radical ideas and the radical agenda, and they've hit the first barrier of real politics, that the leader has actually got some of his own views, and those are very much at odds with their views. Um, and in that kind of way, which is typical of modern politics, but typical of modern life, 
it's like the Amazon response, which is, I don't like this party's lead, I want to send him back. And you can't send him back, you can send back your membership card. Mm. And so you're, you're back to the situation where um, he is um, unremovable, uh, but he's now at odds with a lot of the affiliated unions. Um, he's at odds with uh, nine out of ten of the party members. And he's at odds still with the parliamentary caucus. How much power, how much, sorry to interrupt you there, John, how much power do the unions still uh, have in, within the party structures um, to influence this kind of uh, question about the leadership and the direction of the, the party's been taken right now? Uh, they still have a huge influence um, at conference uh, and, and votes. They could you know, the unions on the, on the National Executive Committee, they could convene uh, a special conference and they could dominate the votes for a special conference. So they could change they could change the policy markedly on this to pro-remain, pro-second referendum. referendum. Um, it's held at bay because the largest affiliated union, uh, Unite, is led by Len McCoskey, who gives his full-throated support to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, even though his membership are uh, probably the same as the other industrial unions, which is the membership um, who work in, in, in manufacturing and other areas don't want to leave the European Union. People who work in car plants don't want to uh, leave the Euro union. Members in car plants don't want to leave the European Union. So the unions could have... It, it, it feels, though, like it's... Jeremy Corbyn was impervious his entire shadow cabinet resigning, his entire shadow ministry resigning, he is impervious to a vote of no confidence by the parliamentary caucus, which has uh, you know, never happened in, 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 in the history of the, of the Labour Party. And he stayed on because the rules don't explicitly say that if you lose a vote of confidence, you have to go. He will stick by the rules and not move. He will not budge, and he'll not budge for all kinds of reasons. He is stubborn in himself, but also the people around him understand that they have no candidate to replace him. There is nobody from the Corbynite left uh, who would necessarily win a leadership election. How much... Um, I mean, there's so much that's happened since uh, since we spoke on the when I was on back at the Labor Party working on uh, doing a pot on the hill, but uh, one of the one of the major spot fires that really happened over uh, Corbyn's leadership. Uh, in between all of these elections was this anti-Semitism problem that reared its awful, ugly head within the party itself and then the poor handling of these accusations of countless uh, examples of anti-Semitism directed to uh, Jewish members of the party and Jewish members of parliament within the party. Um, I was over in, um, in, in London last year in the lead-up to the local government elections uh, and I was uh, door-knocking in, um, in, 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 uh, in one of the London wards and I was just talking to some rank-and-file members at the time uh, and they were saying that they were really worried about the, how Labor would go in some of the areas where there are larger Jewish communities because of the way that Corbyn, under his leadership, and the way that the party administration had handled these uh, these this issue of anti-Semitism that had been flaring away for quite some time. Um, in the end, we saw a whole bunch of you know, really talented Labor Party members of Parliament leave the party and form their own independent group. Just talk us through um, that and what, what impact has that had on the party itself um, and, uh, and also losing talented people like you know, um, Berger and, and Shaka Lamana. Like, what... what how, how much of a problem does this cause the party itself going forward? So the anti-Semitism uh, scandal is one of the most shocking things that has happened uh, in my lifetime in the Labour Party. Uh, I last year went to a demonstration organised by the Jewish community against the Labour leadership. I never envisaged when I joined the Labour Party I would ever demonstrate against the Labour Party leadership, and particularly with the Jewish community against the Labour Party's handling. 
uh, anti-Semitism uh, scandal that I refer to. And it's got to the point where the Equality and Human Rights Commission, a very powerful uh, human rights and equality body that was created by a Labour government, it is investigating the Labour Party for institutional racism. Now, the only other political party it has ever investigated is the neo-fascist British National Party. <laughs> when you think that the Labour Party is now in the same category as a neo-fascist, thuggish, street-fighting party, you have to really wonder how we got here. And the answer is Jeremy Corbyn's politics of why we're here for a range of reasons. First, Jeremy Corbyn's political formation is from that part of the far left which is anti-American. Everything uh, they believe in is anti-American. Everything America supports is wrong and they're opposed to it. America supports Israel. Um, Jeremy Corbyn supports the Palestinians. He supports the Arabs in the uh, in the wars and supports the Palestinians. Um, now, all sensible people in the Labour Party want peace and a two-state solution in Israel-Palestine. But the anti-Israel position is morphed into anti-Semitism, which is disguised very badly as anti-Zionism. Um, but the fact that you know, people say I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Zionist. Zionism is, was the nationalist movement for the Jewish state of Israel. You can't be anti-Zionist without being against the Jewish state of Israel. And it's not the state part that you're against, it's the Jewish part that you're against. And so that formation of the left is one of them. The second one is, in my view, uh, that, part of the le that part of the left has always had alliances with elements of the left uh, which uh, have drawn from Soviet communist uh, ideology, caricatures, language around uh, Jewishness uh, and anti-Semitism. Uh, the, the, the tropes of, the, uh, of, of Soviet communism uh, stayed and lived on the left. And when Jeremy Corbyn uh, and his supporters said, we have no enemies to the left, uh, they lift, they open the door to those kinds of people to come back into the Labour Party or to come into the Labour Party for the first time. They brought with it their ideology and their views, their also anti-Semitism. Now, that's, that, you know, the fish rots from the top, as the old Russian proverb goes. It's because of Jeremy Corbyn and politics, people in the Labour Party, you have to have boundaries uh, on your left as well as on your right political party, because the Labour Party does have enemies on its left. All Labour parties have enemies on their left, undemocratic people who do not believe uh, in the solution, don't, don't share our values. Uh, and I think the final final thing I want to, have to say is they're, the, the, the left is haunted by conspiracy theories, and they're everywhere. You know, the othering is a major part of the far left. You know. The attacking the 1% is the thin end of that othering wedge. Like, the politics of Britain, Australia, America, Australia, France, Germany, there is not some hidden class way somewhere who, if we could only find them and get rid of them, we'd have equality. There's not a conspiracy of a business. Conspiracist theories bleed into each other, and the conspiracist theory of capitalism uh, leads into conspiracy theories of Jews running the world, anti-Semitism, Jews have all the power, Jews control the money, Jews. There's a set of those tropes that they go back to the 19th century. And Jeremy Corbyn says he opposes racism in all its forms, and then appends anti-Semitism to that. But underneath it all, there's a feeling on the left in British politics that you, that you can't discriminate against Jews because they're powerful. Discrimination is is against the powerless. And therefore, anti-racism is one thing that I'm saying. It's quite a different thing. Mm. And Jer Jeremy Corbyn also, to be honest, comes from the poorly educated English, 
poorly educated in this moment process. So it's class formation in itself, none of Victor, really bad at school, no further education, intellectually uncurious, a man whose closest comrades say had never opened a comrade book in his life. That kind of man, he speaks at times in the cliches of the right daily man when he talks about, you know, one speech he said, uh, the Zionists should learn to, to, you know, should learn to fit in, should learn an English sense of irony, and like, accusing Jewish people of having no sense of irony is missing the point of irony is the Jewish thing. It's, it's a concatenation of, it's, well, it's, a, it's, the, it's all of these things together. Um, they add up to a crisis created by German leadership, which he never responded to swiftly enough. And, you know, a day after uh, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former spin doctor, says he voted Liberal Democrat in the election, he gets expelled from the Labour Party. There are still people uh, waiting for a reply on whether people have been anti-Semitic and the Labour Party members are going to be investigated. Um, it tells you where your priorities are. Punishing priorities are because you really care about that. Um, punish an anti-Semite, draw, draw a boundary there, not so much. And, you know, Luciana Berger is a good friend of mine, a good colleague of mine, a comrade. Um, I was really saddened when she left. I could not possibly have argued her out of doing that. I think um, it was brave of the um, Change UK uh, Labour MP, the Labour MPs to leave to join to Change UK. It's such a wrench to leave a party. I'm still a Labour Party member, but I can feel why people could believe not, you know, that on this issue they should break with the Labour Party. On the issue of Europe, they could break, should break with the Labour Party. The Labour Party feels like a very, very uh, fragile um, coalition at the moment. And have Change UK made any impact? Probably not. Um, and that, I think, is because to be successful uh, as a new party, you need to win every single time. Not just that, you have to roll the dice every time. It's every single step of the way is an existential challenge for you. You have to win and win and win and win and win. And sometimes even when you do that, then Mr. Krishnan break the party did uh, in the 80s. You can win and there's no lose. Um, it's very hard to break through uh, in the two-party system uh, in the United Kingdom to, uh, very, very, any two-party system is very hard for a new party to break through. But they have made, I mean, at, at times they have looked brave and principled, and at times they've looked like the Keystone Cops. Um, everybody knows, uh, everybody who's ever been involved in electoral politics knows the one thing you have to do to your candidates is bet them. And when you've done that, bet them again. When you've done that, bet them again, then get them into a room with you, eyeball them, and find out why they're lying to you. Um, because you are only as strong as your weakest link. And the you know, Change UK, one of their candidates defended the Liberal Democrats while still standing as a candidate. Another of them had to resign because of uh, tweets on social media and, uh, and so on and so on. So if you're going to do this, it is high profile, it is high risk, it is high stakes, and your effort uh, has to match all that. And it hasn't. But what it has done is create a reaction inside the Labour Party and Deputy Leader Tom Watson, he prevailed on a number of MPs, some people say up to 40 MPs, prevailed on them not to leave the first change UK. Um, but as a consequence, he created a new discussion group within the Labour Party, within the Parliamentary Caucus, a discussion group of around 140, 150 MPs. So he now sits within uh, the caucus uh, with a group uh, which will be decisive in deciding, in the end, what happens to the Labour Party as things unpack over the next period. Because push beyond, push, push beyond, you know, if there were to be a general election, there could be a minority Labour government. That minority Labour government uh, could be one that's committed to not just confiscation, uh, confiscation and expropriation of private assets like shares and national industries, um, it could also, uh, and of shares in British companies, 
it could also be committed to radical changes to taxation of companies, uh, which would crush one of our biggest sectors like the pharmaceutical industry, uh, a big employer and a big innovator globally. So there's, there are a set of really visible um, policy and politi political conflicts. Um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't believe in NATO. What if, uh, as is entirely possible, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a conflict with a NATO country, either Russia and one of the Baltics, or um, uh, Iran and um, America, and Article 5 NATO, the mutual self-defense clause is invoked. Does anybody seriously believe that Jeremy Corbyn, as Prime Minister, would put British troops into defend Latvia against uh, the Russian Federation, or to defend uh, America against Iran? No, do people believe that the working class and middle class of Britain don't want to see that happen? No, of course not. So we're in this situation where we have this, this I don't know, I mean, Brexit is like a, it's like a sponge that takes up every, everything. It's, um, it absorbs all the bandwidth of politics, and yet just over the horizon, uh, there's the prospect, the real prospect of a Corbyn government. Um, and the real prospect of genuine conflicts, tearing conflicts, that will make some of the disputes about relief and remain a pale and insignificant. You know, it's, you know, it's a fundamental dispute about a socialist economy and um, the disregard for the rule of law and property rights. It's a genuine thing, and that it's going, it's going unargued for the Labour Party and unarticulated. But it's sitting there in the policy, so um, it, it feels, you know, just as it feels that the Tory party got um, the existential crisis because of the, the fight from their fringes, which is dragging them to the right, uh, and it's been playing out in the leadership election, the Labour Party has an existential crisis because uh, from, 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 from its fringe, which is currently its leadership, uh, and those tensions are unpacking because that's what happens to tensions. They don't go away, they're not resolved. They eventually unpack. Before we wrap up, um, and the thing is there's so much for us to talk about, but I just kind of, kind of want to get, I, I want to get a couple of thoughts on just a couple of quick topics that we didn't um, um, cover. Uh, even just like one or two word thoughts. Scottish National uh, Indie Ref uh, number two, what's the likelihood of that happening before uh, 2022? Uh, it seems unlikely, uh, not least because the SNP legislation is to give them powers to have power to have a referendum. It's not actually a, a confrontation. I think the SNP won't accept a referendum as a grievance. They can say they're not allowed to have it rather than uh, actually wanting one for themselves. And no Tory leader will let them have one. Um, and actually, it would be their worst nightmare to have one now because. Uh, support for uh, for independence is actually uh, is at an ebb. It's still, you know, still in the 40s, but I uh, think the opinion polls suggest uh, it's not in terms of voters are. Um, who is the likely uh, candidate to be the new leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of Britain? Boris Johnson. That's it? Just Bor Boris Johnson, that's the man? Uh, after a beating that takes them to below 10% single figures uh, in elections, every Tory MP will be looking at their majority and going, I save, I save is my seat. And you know, everybody in politics knows, never stand between an MP and their seat. They will do anything to save the furniture if they think it's their house that's on fire. And last one, likelihood um, in order of preference of these things happening um, a second uh, referendum on Brexit. Uh, uh, Brexit just happening, uh, or continued intransigence on the matter for another uh, two years. Um, the most likely thing in reality is fudge, uh, because that is a very British solution. Keep on kicking the can down the road. Uh, we may be talking about Brexit for the rest of my political career. I still have decades to run. So I think fudge in the end, um, because there's 
There is no majority in Parliament for a referendum. There's no majority in Parliament for leaving without a deal. There's no majority in Parliament for Theresa May's deal. And there's no willingness on the part of the European Union to renegotiate. So in those circumstances, um, the most likely thing um, is, 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 con is continued debate about this with a longer extension. However, the smart thing to do would be to revoke Article 50, uh, which would then would then, if you were a Tory, if I was Boris Johnson, I'd revoke Article 50, I would say we're staying in the European Union, we still want to leave, but the offer you gave us was so terrible, we're going to keep coming to all the meetings, we're going to be part of the European Council, we're going to come to the, the, the ministerial meetings, we're going to make your lives a misery, we'll still pay our bills, we'll do all that, but we are going to act like squatters in your property mm. until you're desperate to pay us off, uh, and you'll give us whatever we want to leave. Um, and I think that would be smart thing to do unlikely to happen because the Tory party are wisely once described as the stupid party and they really have been driven utterly utterly mad by, by Brexit so they can't think strategically on this anymore, they simply uh, think tactically. John, you've painted uh, an incredibly bleak picture for us Australians watching uh, from far away, but an honest uh, assessment, which um, is why I love getting you on to talk about this sort of stuff, because um, you're always very candid um, in your appraisal of what's going on, and, uh, and we appreciate your time uh, to come on to Socially Democratic and have a chat to us today. We had so much more to talk about, but we're just going to have to leave it for today and get you back on again. I want to talk to you about Brexit and the implications in Ireland and a whole bunch of other things, but um, it's been great having you on today. Absolutely. Uh, John, thanks very much for your time, and uh, we wish you, wish you the best of luck, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.